From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. The uh, the mighty Aphrodite is in New York with a, a friend who's been visiting from Kalamata, Greece. So I've got the boys with me here in the in at the radio station, and uh, they've got their pajamas and their bears and a couple of Narnia movies and their Captain Underpants books and uh, blankets and pillows. So hopefully they're asleep by now. I've got them camped out in an adjoining studio with uh, explicit instructions not to touch any dials, knobs, or buttons. So if we go off the air suddenly, you'll know why. It has nothing to do with the ice storm and power outage that struck Southern Ontario over a week ago. We have a great hour of radio coming your way. John Rappaport of No More Fake News is standing by to explain how we can all exit the matrix this strange programmed reality we find ourselves in. Uh, then in the second half, Mickey Duff is the director of Project Censored. He'll join us to discuss some of the most censored stories of 2013. Uh, a host of stories which document how the New York Police Department operates outside the very laws it's charged with enforcing. In October 2011, for example... A former NYPD narcotics detective testified that he regularly saw police plant drugs on innocent people as a way to meet arrest quotas. That's just one of the uh, 25 stories uh, Project Censored has uh, listed as the most censored stories of 2013. And uh, we'll get to some of those a little bit later uh, in the hour. For those of you who are new to the program, I'm uh, certain as we head into 2014... And what is sure to be a, a turbulent, challenging year, you'll come to rely more and more on this type of program for news and information. If you were shocked and surprised by revelations that the National Security Agency is spying on just about everyone, that your email, your cell phone, your internet surfing habits are being monitored, I've got news for you. This is just the beginning as we continue what I am calling the long, inexorable march towards totalitarianism. And all this happening under the nose of the mainstream news-gathering organizations, which are supposed to be safeguarding our freedoms and liberties, not participating in their destruction. Witness the recent takeover of the once venerable and respected Washington Post, the newspaper that broke the Watergate conspiracy. The new owner of the Post is none other than Jeff Bezos, the founder and CEO of Amazon.com. So you may ask, Well, Bezos and Amazon Web Services have just been awarded a $600 million contract with the CIA to build a version of the online cloud that will run inside the Central Intelligence Agency. A conflict of interest? Jeez, do you think? If you think reporters at the Post now will be free to write investigative pieces on the CIA, then I've got a nice parcel of bottomland for you in Key West. And here now to talk about that and much more, one of my favorites, John Rappaport has worked as a freelance investigative reporter for over 30 years. He's written articles on politics, health, media, culture, and art for L.A. Weekly, Spin Magazine, Stern, Village Voice, Nexus, CBS Health Watch, and other newspapers and magazines in the U.S. and Europe. He's lectured extensively all over the U.S. on the question, who runs the world and what can we do about it? For the last 10 years, John has operated largely away from the mainstream because, as he puts it, my research was not friendly to the conventional media. 
Over the last 30 years, John's independent research has encompassed such areas as deep politics, conspiracies, alternative health, the potential of the human imagination, mind control, the medical cartel, symbology, and solutions to the takeover of the planet by hidden elites. And you can read his weekly blog on his wildly, wildly popular website, nomorefakenews.com. Always a pleasure and a learning experience when John Rappaport joins us here on The Conspiracy Show. John, how are you, my friend? Very good, Richard. Great to be here, as always. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about uh, uh, this takeover at the Washington Post and why we should all be standing up and taking notice. Well, it's quite insane, really, and part of the insanity is that other major media outlets are not really picking up on the story and investigating it uh, significantly. As you summarized, Jeff Bezos, who is the founder and CEO of Amazon, has bought Washington Post for $250 million and uh, bargain price. And Amazon Web Services has just won this $600 million contract to service the CIA with a version of the cloud that will be running inside the CIA. So uh, we know, of course, that the Washington Post for many years has been extremely friendly to the CIA and that the CIA has vetted a number of stories before they permitted them to be printed and the CIA uses the Washington Post as a kind of mouthpiece on occasion. But this is uh, the cherry on the cake because now anything that the Washington Post would say about the CIA is not only suspect but to be discounted completely and since I know a lot about the game of reporting I can certainly guarantee that uh, journalists inside the Washington Post are not going to be writing stories critical of the CIA in any significant way. That's just not going to happen. So, Not if there's a $600 million contract uh, at stake. Yeah, right. So and, they're bent beyond recall. Now, isn't there some sort of ethical question at work here? Shouldn't Bezos be forthcoming then uh, in declaring some sort of a conflict of interest or at least you know, coming out publicly and saying, yes, we do have this contract. Uh, uh, you know, I, I would think that there would be sort of a, you know, he would take out a, a, a two-page op-ed piece or something to assure his, his readers that this isn't going to impact the rep- reportage at the, at the Washington Post. But he's been silent on this question, has he not? Yeah, and that seems to be the strategy these days. People with enormous amounts of money prefer to just remain silent if they possibly can and hope that the whole thing just sort of fades away and people don't remember it. The Post itself should be making statements, you know, about a possible conflict of interest. They should be disclosing the fact that there is this $600 million contract that Bezos now has with the CIA, but of course they're not going to do that either because there's no way they can slip and slide around this as soon as they would make an announcement like that. People would you know, just simply doubt anything they have to say. Why should we believe you when you say that there will be no conflict of interest and that you'll continue to report honestly on the CIA? I mean, that's just not going to happen. It would open a can of worms, and so they just hope that they can skate by it 
and people won't take notice. And so far, they've been successful. Well, for years, I think we've all had sort of a, 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 a suspicion. Uh, in fact, it was a Washington Post reporter, uh, of course, one of the, uh, the principals uh, behind breaking the Watergate story, um, Carl Bernstein, who wrote a piece for, I believe it was Rolling Stone magazine back in the mid to late 70s, uh, talking about the infiltration of the CIA into the mainstream news gathering organizations. Uh, now we have that very paper that broke Watergate, essentially, uh, I don't know, I, I don't want to say being taken over by the CIA, uh, but certainly uh, will be heavily scrutinized by uh, the CIA. I just find that very ironic. Yeah, it is very ironic. And then we had a situation there with Ben Bradley, who had worked for the CIA in Europe, you know, when he was the managing editor for a very long time. And that's one reason that I have written about Watergate and don't believe the scenario that was laid out about how it all came to pass and how two rookie reporters were entrusted with the entire future and reputation of the paper to break a story about Deep Throat and Nixon and so on and so forth. So this all goes back a long way, no question about it. But now, you know, you have a target, which is Bezos. I mean, he's a public figure. He's right out there. Uh, there's no question that there's a conflict of interest at the very least because of that huge contract with the CIA and it's just sort of sitting there like a rock. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, the paper is going to go on its merry way and pretend that there isn't a problem and and hope they can get away with it. One then, then how now has to stand back and question what other media organizations have made uh, side deals with the CIA or the FBI, not necessarily business deals, uh, but just some, may perhaps come to some uh, mutual uh, agreement, wink, wink, nod, nod, uh, about, you know, the sharing of certain information. Uh, and then the question would be, you know, what was the bargain? Well, we can see that with uh, the Edward Snowden affair, because the Washington Post is one of the few papers that you know, had direct access to Snowden and his documents, the Washington Post, the Guardian, two major papers. And the stories that have come out about Snowden's revelations, you know, there are many, many meetings with lawyers and representatives of the NSA and government people that proceed breaking these stories. I mean, the Guardian has done it. Uh, with their version of these agencies in England, and so is the Washington Post and the New York Times. And this is just a general practice. I mean, these media outlets, whenever national security rears its ugly head, uh, they make sure that they're not stepping on any toes. And so you have many conversations. And so I think we can assume uh, certainly that NSA has looked at a great deal of the material that uh, the Post has, and you know they've said, okay, well you can you can write a story about this and that, but not about this because we have agents in the field or we have certain methods of surveillance which we don't want revealed. 
so there's no reason to suppose that we are even penetrating deep into the iceberg of NSA with what has been revealed about uh, Snowden's uh, material, because all of these stories are carefully prepared and then vetted by the U.S. government before they're printed. So this is just an ongoing thing. I talk uh, about a side deal. That's a, you know, that's front and center. Well, so much for a free press. All right, uh, John Rappaport is with us. No more fake news dot com. We'll come back. We'll touch briefly on Duck Dynasty on trial, and uh, then talk about uh, John's CD-ROM series, Exit the Matrix. We'll find out how we can get off this crazy Hindu wheel, and uh, on to other things. Back with more of the conspiracy conspiracy show. Stay with us. and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Mickey Huff, the director of Project Censored, uh, just around the corner right now. John Rappaport from NoMoreFakeNews.com is with us. And uh, I wanted to talk about this never-ending Duck Dynasty dynasty uh, scandal. For those of you who don't know about this, uh, it is probably one of the most popular programs on TV at the moment on um, A&E. And the, uh, the the patriarch of the uh, of the uh, Duck Dynasty is, uh, is Phil Robertson, uh, who was suspended from the show uh, earlier in the month after uh, making what were considered to be homophobic and all around offensive remarks during an interview to GQ magazine. Uh, then, of course, the governor of uh, Louisiana uh, chimed in, Bobby Jindal, and uh, even, I believe, the uh, lieutenant governor saying that these are uh, – Phil Robertson is a great citizen of Louisiana and that this was a uh, – uh, you know, a, a, a shot against uh, – across the bow of uh, free speech and so forth. Uh, even Cracker Barrel removed their uh, Duck Dynasty products from their shelves in response to the so-called homophobic remarks. Uh, but they were hit with a deluge of response from Dynasty fans. They ended up writing an apology to those fans and putting those products back on the shelves. And, of course, the latest, A&E has decided to reinstate Phil Robertson on Duck Dynasty. And uh, I wanted to get your reaction to that uh, uh, because you wrote an interesting blog about this, uh, John. Yes, it's a crazy story, no question about it. I came at it from this angle, that the government, federal government of the United States, which has been pretty quiet about this whole thing, is really very interested in all of this, because under the present administration, political correctness has risen to, you know, new heights or sunk to new lows. The story there is that there is a cultural war taking place in America and a vast amount of propaganda that is aimed at trying to get the populace to speak correctly, not say certain things. You can say other things. In fact, you must say other things. And this all has to do with race. It has to do with gender. 
It has to do with all sorts of subjects, guns and so on. And the attempt is to really institute a cultural thought police so that people not only don't do certain things, they don't say certain things, and they don't even think about certain things because they're afraid that under the terms of the surveillance state that you alluded to at the top of the show, they could be in for a rough ride and all sorts of peer pressure could be brought against them. And so what you're really looking at here is self-censorship. That's the end product of the culture war where people just don't talk about certain things because they're afraid. They're afraid of the reaction. They're afraid even some people might think they're breaking a law. There is this sort of cloudy idea in America, which is more clearly defined, unfortunately, in Canada, of hate speech. Am I guilty of hate speech if I say this or that or the other thing? And so this whole thing with Phil Robertson is a shot across the bow of that regardless of the content of what he said. You know, it was a magazine interview, and he just uh, said, well, I believe in the Bible and God, and this is what the Bible says, and so I think that homosexuality is a sin. And it could have been left at that. But the network, of course, A&E, which originally put on the show Duck Dynasty because they thought it would be a giggle for the audience, these crazy guys that live in the swamp and, and all of that, all of a sudden, you know, it turned out to be their biggest moneymaker and one of the most popular shows on cable with a gigantic audience. And so all of a sudden, it became serious business. And so they were just caught between a rock and a hard place when Robertson made those statements. And so they felt obliged to go along with political correctness. They figured the blowback would be horrendous if they didn't do something, and so they censored him and took him off the air. But then, <laughs> little did they know what the extent of the outcry would be about that, people threatening to boycott the network and so on and so forth. And so they reinstated him because they just made a business decision. And they also discovered, I think, that the values being espoused by Phil Robertson in that piece, and maybe most Americans wouldn't phrase it the way that he did, but those values are in line with the majority of Americans. Well, certainly a great number of Americans who have been very silent about it until now. And so, of course, Robertson has become a sort of a folk hero, but in a wider sense, he's become a folk hero because he just happened to speak his mind and didn't care what happened. And it could have been on a variety of different subjects that were considered highly sensitive and so forth and so on. And meanwhile, all of this is just on cable. It's not on the major networks. I mean, the major networks would never put on that show to begin with, but if they did and this sort of thing happened, they would be obliged never to put him back on the air, regardless of how many people objected, because they are in such collusion with the government and its public and hidden agenda that they have to go along with it. I mean, they are part of that establishment. Cable is a little bit different. It's a little bit freer. So A&E figured they could get away with reinstating him. Is this a victory against political correctness? Well, I think it is. I think it really is. Because the people who try to shout down other people who say what is on their minds and what they believe have been forced to kind of retreat, at least temporarily, on this. 
and lick their wounds and try to figure out what to do next because they're used to winning all the time. You know, that a comedian will stand up and say something in a show and then all of a sudden it becomes a big blow up and then the comedian issues a completely insincere apology and uh, falls on his sword and then the whole thing goes away. Maybe he's forced to have meetings with certain you know, groups to assure them that he's not prejudiced, etc., cetera, et cetera. You know, so these groups, these pressure groups, whether they're gay groups or whether they represent racial groups or whoever they are, they're used to winning outright without even trying. They just lift a finger when this happens. They push a button and all of the propaganda machine goes into high gear and then they get apologies, which is all part of the deal of the culture wars. This is the way it's supposed to happen. And then the citizenry says, yeah, well, okay, so we apologize. So, you know, I don't want to get caught in a situation like that where I say something that might offend somebody else, so I'm just going to keep my eyes straight ahead and my mouth shut, which is exactly what the government wants. I mean, this is part and parcel of the surveillance state. It's just taking place in a different way in a different venue. And when Robertson refused to retract his statements, all of a sudden the whole thing just kind of sat there, you know, and was very uh, nervous-making for these pressure groups, and they eventually had to retreat, at least for the time being, especially when A&E reinstated Robertson, and so now that is a victory for free speech, no question about it. All right, well, perhaps there's a... um uh, a future run at the White House or the Senate for uh, for Mr. Robertson. John Rappaport is with us from uh, No More Fake News. I want to spend a few moments talking about your uh, your CD-ROM series, uh, Exit the Matrix. What's that all about, John? Well, we can get into it in more detail, but uh, it's basically a huge mega collection of audio presentations that I have done. And a lot of it is based on the work that I did with a brilliant hypnotherapist named Jack True in the late 80s and early 90s. Uh, Because Jack, as he put it to me, stopped doing hypnosis when he realized that new patients walking through the door were already hypnotized. And so his. That's a pretty profound statement. (laughs) Yeah, it was quite startling to me when. Uh, until we got into deeper conversations about it. So basically what he was saying was, at the core of consciousness of most people, there is hypnosis, serious hypnotic mind control operating all the time. The point of his therapy after that was to wake up a person in that core. And he said, make no mistake about it, he said, I'm not talking about zombies wandering down the street. People... Many people are quite active, they go about their lives, but underneath it all, there is this core place where they are indeed hypnotized into a certain kind of reality which gives them the notion that they have severely limited potential, severely limited abilities. For example, that this whole area of the paranormal, for example, doesn't exist at all, it's a sham, there's nothing to support it when in fact people at large already have these abilities, but they've been put to sleep. And that's kind of where the whole exit from the matrix research began for me back in the 1980s. So how do we reverse that? How do we begin that process? I conducted many interviews with Jack. He died in the 1990s along that very question. 
And what we both came to conclude was that you needed exercises and techniques that would expand the role of creative power in a person's life. And if a person was committed to doing such exercises, he would indeed begin to wake up at that level and realize that he had been completely bamboozled into a hypnotic view of reality and what's possible in reality. And upon waking up like that would lead a completely different kind of life. So my work since then, in collaboration with Jack, has been to develop such exercises and techniques. But part of that process, and you've written extensively about this, part of that process of uh, uh, placing is uh, in this hypnosis, this deep trance, begins at a very young age uh, in the in the classroom, administering antipsychotic drugs to children. In some cases, you've got decades and decades of I don't know how to describe it, but abuse, if you will, to uh-huh. you know to work through before you can wake people up. I mean. That could be a lifelong process. Yes, for some people it is a long process. For others who lead a reasonably healthy life, it doesn't have to be. But I think we're really talking about a level of conditioning that begins in the womb. I mean, it's not just after the baby is born. The impact of this reality in which we live is passed down from generation to generation. And there are memories of it collective memories that everyone has of a consensus about reality, about what reality is, what it isn't, what it can be, what it can't be, and what the limits are, the severe limits, and how we're supposed to live our lives within those limits. All of that is deeply embedded in consciousness, especially when you stop and realize that until... Fairly recently, many, many cultures across the world believed in personal reincarnation, and some still do. And this is yet another area that's been completely cut off from people. So they consider, well, this is, this is my go-around, this is my life, here it is, I live, I die, that's it. When that's simply not the standard and for a long time, historically, was not the standard for the bulk of humanity, who believed that you come back many, many, many times, that you have memories of this, and that if you can access those memories, you then begin to look at your existence in a completely, completely different way. Uh, John, how can we get a hold of uh, Exit the Matrix? Well, if people go to my website, at nomorefakenews.com. They'll see the graphic there, and they can read all about it, a complete description of the materials, and they can order it right there at the site. What else What else are you working on these days? Actually, a new product, which doesn't have a name yet, uh, which is the impl- implication, you might say, of Exit from the Matrix, taking it all one step further with new exercises and techniques and a whole new look at creative power, and hopefully that product will be ready to go in a month or so. So I've been working very hard on that with a lot of audio presentations and uh, 
I think maybe the beginning of February that'll be available to the public. As you look ahead to 2014, uh, are you uh, optimistic? Are you concerned? Uh, how would you uh, how would you characterize your, your feelings about the year ahead? I'm both. You know, uh, I can see some really gigantic storm clouds approaching in certain areas, but at the same time, I see that. This awakening process that has been accelerating since the Internet took hold is expanding, you know, by the minute, by the hour, by the day, all across the world. What I'm concerned about is that people have some uh, path along which they can move to not only learn more about the lies, the conspiracies, uh, the fabrications, of reality, but also how to get out of it. And that's what really my work has been focusing on of late and hence Exit from the Matrix and so forth. Keep fighting the good fight, John. Look forward to doing some uh, more great shows with you in 2014. All the best. Thank you, Richard. John Rappaport, no more fake news. The top censored stories of 2013 when The Conspiracy Show continues right after this. Take a look around. What do you really see? This is where you can tell all about it. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Here are some headlines you probably didn't read in the um, mainstream news media in uh, 2013. U.S. joins forces with Al-Qaeda in Syria. NYPD caught planting drugs on innocent citizens. NATO war crimes in Libya. A small network of corporations runs the global economy. These are just a a few of the uh, 25 of the most censored stories of 2013. And the list was compiled by Project Censored. Project Censored educates students and the public about the importance of a truly free press for democratic self-government. They expose and oppose new censorship and promote independent investigative journalism, media literacy, and critical thinking. As they say, an informed public is crucial to democracy in at least two basic ways. First, without access to relevant news and opinion, people cannot fully participate in government. Second, without media literacy, people cannot evaluate for themselves the quality or significance of the news they receive. Censorship undermines democracy. Project Censored's work, including their annual book, weekly radio broadcasts, campus affiliate program, and additional community events, highlights the important links among a free press, media literacy, and democratic self-government. Here to tell us more about uh, some of the top censored stories of 2013, including the ones I just mentioned, is Mickey Huff, the director of Project Censored. He's on the board of directors for the Media Freedom Foundation. He's currently professor of social science and history at Diablo Valley College in the San Francisco Bay Area, where he is co-chair of the history department. Mickey is also co-host with former Project Censored director Dr. Peter Phillips of the Project Censored show. The program airs weekly as part of the morning mix on Pacifica's KPFA Free Speech Radio in Berkeley, California, and rebroadcasts on several stations, including NoLiesRadio.org and the Progressive Radio Network out of New York City. 
He's also on the steering committee of Banned Books Week, working with members of the American Library Association, the American Booksellers Foundation for Free Expression, and the National Coalition Against Censorship, among others, as Project Censored is a co-sponsor of the events this year. Mickey Huff, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Richard, thanks so much for having me on. I'm doing very well, and uh, again, I appreciate the opportunity to come come and talk about some of these very important issues. So again, thank you very much. Give us some insights on how the the list of the most censored stories are are compiled. Well, Project Censored was founded in 1976 uh, through Sonoma State University by Carl Jensen, continued 20 years later by a sociologist, Peter Phillips. And it's, it's a research project, but it's also based on education and public education and the importance of media literacy and critical thinking, as you just mentioned in your introduction. And the way we research these stories is that you know, the stories can be nominated through our website, projectcensored.org. Uh, stories are nominated uh, and researched uh, by people all across the U.S. Um, we all survey professors and students. In, we all survey independent on alternative non-corporate media for what appear to be you know, very relevant and important stories. We then have students in various classes, for example, this last year, uh, we had 18 participating colleges and universities, uh, over a couple of hundred students, uh, 50 plus professors, and over 10, uh, 13 actually community members and so forth participating and vetting and researching these stories. Um, but we use LexisNexis and ProQuest and various uh, university library type databases to find out where these kinds of stories are being covered. Students then, and again, all of this information about how we do our research and all of our methodology is on our website. Um, so people are invited to go and look there. And, of course, your listeners are invited to nominate stories for us to research as well. But um, we then take the stories from the students to a professor or an expert in the field that the story deals with, and they factually vet it, and they, they look it over to see if it seems to be accurate. It's then re-researched, and then it's, it becomes something that's called a validated independent news story. And what we've done at Project Censored for the last 37 years is laud the importance and significance of independent non-corporate media. And, of course, your listeners are likely familiar with the term mainstream media. We don't believe that what is referred to as mainstream media represents mainstream viewpoints at all. Corporate media, particularly in the United States, five corporations dominate roughly 90% of the news media landscape and entertainment landscape. And um, that's very problematic. And we try to call attention to that type of control and top-down managed news propaganda, and we try to elevate uh, the significance of a truly free press and independent reporting through this research project. We publish a book every year through Seven Stories Press out of New York City. We publish our reports and our stories year-round on our website, projectcensor.org. And again, we really focus on community. Uh, we focus on public education. And, and we focus really on a free press, and, and that's our big issue, is even though people may, may want to, to, to claim Project Censored is pushing uh, an agenda about a particular subject that we cover, the reality is, is that the only agenda that we're actually pursuing is one of a free press, and one that operates in the interest of the public 
not merely private and plutocratic interests. Mickey Huff is with us, the uh, director of Project Censored. We'll take a time out, come back, and we'll delve into some of the top censored stories of 2013, including number 19 on the list, New York police plant drugs on innocent people to meet arrest quotas. Be careful, mighty Aphrodite, who is visiting New York at this very moment. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Welcome back. Mickey Huff is with us, the director of Project Censored. We don't have a lot of time, and I don't want to spend an inordinate amount of time on uh, any one story, but I want to uh, get to as many of the uh, ones that I find particularly disturbing, uh, anyway, as we can. Uh, and it, this is number 19 on the list of the 25 most censored stories of 2013, Mickey. New York police plant drugs on innocent people to meet arrest quotas. Now, if I'm not correct, this also made the list last year, so this is obviously an ongoing story. Yes, it is. And um, some of these stories that you're reading are from our 2013 book. Our 2014 book actually came out in October with a whole new list, and your listeners can go online to see what those are. But you're correct in saying that this stop-and-frisk story has been going on for quite some time. It continues to this day. And, in fact, it is a program that is being replicated across the U.S., including uh, in places like Oakland, California, where they're trying to implement similar type policies. And um, you know, what this story really came out uh, it was originally in the Gothamist, uh, which was which was published um, in, in, out of New York. Um, it's been on Alternet. Uh, it's been in a few other places um, in the independent media. And not only is it a story about New York City wasting uh, $75 million a year on marijuana arrests, that's one element, um, we have a whistleblower story here, and that's one of the big focal points of our new book on whistleblowers and the war on journalism. Uh, an NYPD narcotic detective claims and, and states that uh, because of the pressure internally for police to have arrests and quotas to continue to get money, they regularly plant drugs on people on the street. And in the stop and frisk program, a vast majority of people that are stopped uh, in violation, clearly, of their Fourth Amendment rights, are minorities. Um, and uh, so it's a combination of racial profiling, a uh, combination of, 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 again, corrupt police officers. And by the way, that's not to suggest that all police officers are involved in this kind of activity, but it does show that whistleblowers are coming out and saying that some police are violating the law looking to cause trouble. Look, stop and frisk is a problem already in terms of people's rights to privacy, rights to free movement, and so on. And when you look statistically at the 70 to 80 percent of people that are stopped are being young men of color, uh, you know, this is a, a, a <laughs> this is exemplary of a, of a police state structure. And we've seen the paramilitarization of the United States over the last decade since 9-11. We see it in many guises in our 2013 book, um, which came out in the fall of 2012. We talk about that. In fact, that was the top story, the signs of the emerging police state, the National Defense Authorization Act. Obama just re-signed that uh, this year. Uh, and again, things like stop and frisk are very problematic. And there have been some profi- high-profile movements against it. People like Cornell West and Carl Dix and others have traveled the United States trying to call attention to this, and there is some resistance to it. However, uh, it doesn't get much attention, and it's gotten some attention in New York City, 
but um, it doesn't seem to get the type of attention that it ought to get concerning how problematic the program really is, including the illegal elements of it that were brought out by the NYPD whistleblower. Once you verify these stories and fact-check them and double-fact-check them and triple-fact-check them, do you then go back to some of the mainstream, let's say the New York Times, and say, hey, why didn't you guys or why aren't you guys on top of this story? As a matter of fact, Richard, we do sometimes, and, you know, in, in, in their... Um, in their defense, occasionally these uh, so-called mainstream or corporate media entities do cover these. And in New York, they did cover Stop and Frisk because it was a local story. But some of these outlets do cover it. And in our books every year, we have a chapter called Deja Vu, which goes back and looks at previously underreported or censored stories to find out what happened to these stories. Were they picked up? Were they covered? And when they are covered and when they are picked up, we, we do laud that. We, what we've seen, Andy Lee Roth, uh, who is our associate director and co-editor with me at Project Censored, uh, what we've discovered in the last couple of years, and it's a pattern that we've traced back through Project Censored's history, is that there seems to be an 18 to 24-month lag between independent news media and corporate news media when they will actually pick up a particular story. That's not to say that they always will pick up a particular story, unfortunately. But there seems to be a real lag with that, and some of that might have to do with various influences, advertising, ownership, uh, a reliance on official sources, and so forth. But occasionally, uh, you know, the major news media do pick up these important stories, and if they would just simply pick them up more often, I'm sure we'd all be better off for it. Uh, I want to talk to you uh, about a story here that I think many of uh, listeners to this program have long, long suspected, and we've talked about it at length, and that is the U.S. joining forces with al-Qaeda uh, in Syria. Well, we've long covered stories about the U.S. involvement in Libya, uh, U.S. Uh, uh, joining al-Qaeda forces now in Syria, Saudi Arabia supporting certain groups in al-Qaeda groups in Syria, certainly more revelations, or I should I say uh, repeated revelations in quotes about Saudi support, Saudi state support for the 9-11 attacks. Um, this, you know, anybody, I mean, I'm an historian, I cover foreign issues, U.S. foreign policy. I mean, U.S. support for al-Qaeda goes, of course, as you know, all the way back to Osama bin Laden and the Mujahideen in Afghanistan in 1979 with the erection of al-Qaeda. And, you know, Clinton, the Clinton administration was simultaneously working with al-Qaeda groups in the Yugoslav War while uh, attempting to oust Osama bin Laden from various places around the globe, from Sudan to uh, Pakistan. Um, it's a complicated story, uh, perhaps for people that, again, aren't familiar with the history of U.S. covert operations and Central Intelligence Agency activities working in concert with Mossad and MI5 and 6 and so forth. Uh, but it's, again, a very real one, and, and we do see this. And it's interesting, uh, you know, the story that we did on al-Qaeda in Syria going back to 2011, we're now coming up on 2014, and um, we're seeing more stories come out. So if we were to do a deja vu on this kind of story, one of the things we'd be pointing out is that, um, you know, more and more, even Seymour Hirsch now has come out talking about the use of chemical weapons and how these chemical weapons being used in Syria may likely not be from the Assad regime. That should not be mistaken as a pro-Assad remark. It simply is saying that there are external forces that would like to wreak havoc in various Middle Eastern states for ulterior motives. 
And the U.S. corporate media tends to report in line with the military-industrial complex, the Pentagon, the White House, etc. Um, they often take their marching orders via Operation Mockingbird through the Central Intelligence Agency and NSA. And uh, we've learned more about that this year. But we think people should be just more aware of how these stories come about. And they're often a lot more complicated than just... Uh, black and white or good guy, bad guy, and so forth. And we think that the people uh, in the U.S. are intelligent enough to understand some of these nuances, but they're often not given the opportunity to understand them because the facts are so often buried. Well, granted, geopolitics is very nuanced, but the excuse that the that is often trotted out, uh, that uh, sometimes you have to make a deal with the devil and the enemy of my enemy is my friend, mm-hmm. I don't think washes post-9-11 if... For example, one uh, believes, uh, the official line, that al-Qaeda was responsible for the 9-11 attacks. You can't go to the American public and say, yes, we're in bed with al-Qaeda uh, because of some future goal in this complex you know, chess game that is the Mideast. Uh, and then, uh, on the other hand, and say, yes, but they did you know, uh, kill 3,000 uh, people on September 11th, 2001. No, it's very, it's very problematic for U.S. officials to do that, which is why it's easier if the stories are simply suppressed. I think what's more unfortunate, perhaps, Richard, is that um, in, in some, some circles, particularly left circles where there is a pretense towards, um, quote-unquote, truthful reporting or uh, reporting truth to power, so to speak, um, uh, that there are an amazing number of people there that are otherwise very suspicious of U.S. government power and so forth that have towed the anti-Assad line missing the very nuances of al-Qaeda missing uh, the U.S., Israel, and Saudi Arabia's interests in this. And on the surface, they may look very confusing, but once peeking underneath, um, you know, there, there's definitely an agenda afoot, and people have the right to know about it. All right, Mickey, Duff, uh, Mickey Huff rather, is with us, the uh, director of Project Censored, the website projectcensored.org. And now, here's another one, sort of the suspicions confirmed file. And, and, and on this program, and ones like it, we often talk about you know, the existence of some very powerful elite cabal that is uh, sort of uh, you know, in holding the, uh, the strings. And here we have uh, a University of Zurich study, which uh, made, made the list, small network of corporations do indeed run the global economy. Can you expound on that a little? Yeah, this was a study that was done that looked at over 40,000 transnational corporations, and a University of Zurich study showed that 147 companies formed what they called a super entity that controlled almost half of the global economy's total wealth, uh, this was reported uh, various places, including the Daily Mail, Public Library of Science. Uh, however, uh, we've also covered it here at Project Censor. Peter Phillips, our former director, uh, he's done a chapter in the 2014 book and 2013 book on exposing the 1%, the ruling class, plutocracy, really in line with some of the work C. Wright Mills did in The Power Elite. But going beyond that work and naming names and showing the network, I mean, again, it's not to use the word conspiracy in the negative CIA sense that it's been used since the 60s to cast doubt uh, on researching the powerful. It's to say quite literally that there are actual conspiracies and factual conspiracies where there are a, a very small group of people, you know, hundreds of people that would fit, you know, in, a, in an auditorium at, at your local community center or college or wherever that do make an, a, a, a lot of decisions 
about what's going to happen in the world, what happens with capital, what happens with labor, and so forth. Uh, and this study, of course, at Zurich really you know, helped sh- show that further. Again, I would urge listeners to go and look at the two chapters Peter Phillips has done with us on exposing the 1% and naming, literally, the top 35 of the transnational corporate class, the capitalist class, who sits on their boards of directors, where they have gone to colleges, what are their social networks. Uh, You know, it's not rocket science, uh, even in the United States and in political science realms, which is academically a fairly conservative field. You know, years ago, it was basically agreed upon that about seven or 8,000 people in the United States control what's called public policy. I'd argue the number is much smaller at this point. Certainly the people in Zurich are suggesting the same. But again, these are very real kind of conspiracies. These aren't dark room uh, types of activities. These are Cayman Island activities. These are things that are happening with people's uh, taxpayer money. These corporations get massive taxpayer subsidies, and they often are involved in violating international law, and I think people really should get wise to it. Occupy Wall Street tried to call some attention to that. I think we should continue in that vein and shine the light in the dark places to see what's really going on in our world.